for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. We try to reach a final diagnosis where you say, okay, which type of malformation you have and if you eventually you look at the, um, for um, perform the mutation analysis, which type of mutation. This week we are talking with the lovely Eleonora Aronica from the University of Amsterdam, who researches epilepsy through neuropathology. Now for those who aren't overly familiar with the term, a neuropathologist is a person who studies diseases of the nervous system, such as the epilepsies. Eleonora tells us about her research into our brain tissue, which over time improves our understanding of the brain and treatments of the epilepsies. Also, uh, actually it's important, a tip for this week, if you aren't overly familiar with medical terms, do keep the Epilepsy Sparks glossary right next to you, link in the text, um, as lots of words that many of us are not familiar with are used this week. Stay tuned to learn more. And if you would also like to learn more about epilepsy and epilepsy research each week for free, do subscribe to the channel. If you're already a fan of the channel, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review because it makes a huge difference to us. Also, do make sure you check out the text below if you're interested in learning more about Eleonora at her research, the Epilepsy Conference in Denmark and our websites. Righty-ho, as a lemming would say, let's go. Hello, Eleonora. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please, could you tell everybody a bit about yourself? Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure uh, to tell something about myself and the research, uh, focus on epilepsy. I'm originally Italian. You can hear from my accent. Got that lovely uh, twang. I yes. Move, <laughs> I moved from Italy in 1991. That was a long time ago. And uh, I start uh, as a student of medicine to be interested in mechanism of uh, brain disease at uh, the time when I was a student. And uh, particularly I did a stage in neuropharmacology uh, where we address also epilepsy. And, uh, and then I had the possibility when I did my specialization in neurology to do some research. And then uh, I moved uh, for this uh, in, the, in the Netherlands and I thought to stay only six months, uh, but then That's what uh, happens. I stayed more. <laughs> <laughs> I did my PhD in uh, Amsterdam and I met in Amsterdam a great uh, person and scientist in epilepsy, Professor Lopez da Silva and thus inspired me uh, to work on epilepsy. Uh, but then uh, after my PhD, I moved to United States and I was in Albany and New York. And, uh, and then I also work on uh, neurological disorder, basic mechanism, uh, including epilepsy. And, uh, and there I met a neuropathologist and that was, I thought, oh, maybe, uh, oh, I do neurology another time, uh, a specialization, oh, I do neuropathology. And then I was ready to start doing neuropathology in the, uh, in the United States, in New York. Uh, and then uh, with my husband, he's also a researcher. So I married with a Dutch, uh, I have now two children. 
and he's also a scientist uh, working on epilepsy from uh, neurobiology. Oh, perfect. So then, but then in '93 uh, we decide, in '96 we decide to go back to the Netherlands. So we move back. I have to restart again, <laughs> and then I thought, oh, what I have to do? I would like to do uh, epilepsy research uh, and neuropathology, so I wrote my own project and this was a support by fellowship at the uh, Epilepsy Institute uh, of the north of the Netherlands, SIGN. And thanks to this fellowship, for uh, uh, I with my own project, I start to work on pathology. Uh, I did research, but I want to do the second specialization in neuropathology and uh, was possible. Uh, I have to say that neuropathology in the Netherlands is uh, not a separate uh, program, it's a training program, so you have to go through neurology or through pathology. I did through neurology, so I'm neurologist uh, and registered as a neurology. But I had the possibility to do this specialization in neuropathology with focus on neuropathology of epilepsy. And, uh, and then I built slowly, slowly a research team with a link uh, to SIGN, which is the research uh, expertise centrum for the north of the Netherlands uh, and link also to more basic science uh, uh, and the, of the University of Amsterdam for the experimental model. So we try in our team with a young scientist uh, to combine uh, uh, the basic research, so the mechanism of uh, epilepsy, seizure development, progression, pharmacoresistance, uh, with the patients, uh, so with the, uh, really the clinical work using uh, human material, so we are in neuropathology based, so we combine both uh, uh, the experiment in models, in vitro, in vivo, and uh, the human tissue obtained at surgery from patients with uh, uh, drug-resistant epilepsy. So is that where you get the majority of your tissue is from, from surgeries? The majority of uh, tissue indeed is from epilepsy surgery uh, and uh, this is in collaboration with uh, colleagues also at the University of Utrecht where for example more the pediatric surgery for epilepsy is performed. And this is a good characterized tissue uh, and uh, within our project we characterize also more recently the genetic features of this uh, tissue, looking for specific alteration in the tissue uh, and also clinically good characterized. So we look at different aspects uh, uh, using the tissue and, uh, and getting information uh, data to understand why uh, this tissue is epileptogenic. And then uh, we have also some cases uh, of post-mortem material. Uh, they are uh, rare uh, because not a lot of, uh, um, there is not a biobank which is uh, dedicated to epilepsy as in UK. Uh, and uh, uh, we are interested in genetic epilepsy and most of the time uh, uh, this uh, post-mortem material is not available. So until, until there is not permission for uh, autopsy, there is not, a, as I say, a dedicated biobank. This is a pity because uh, the surgical epilepsy allows us uh, to study only a group of uh, disease, but uh, uh, other disease where surgery is not performed, we don't have uh, tissue, so we cannot uh, validate uh, the models. Oh gosh, that is a real shame. It's like missing a trick, really. Yes, uh, uh, that is uh, really a pity. I always say, yeah, it is a pity that it's not a biobank. Uh, clearly, if we think of genetic epilepsy, which uh, uh, are not uh, target surgical uh, um, intervention, 
uh, it is difficult to get the permission of patients which uh, also are in institutions. So I think it is possible to get uh, to uh, establish a biobank, but you need really a big effort and organization. They are biobank for uh, all the neurodegenerative disease. We have a great biobank, an Ederas biobank, also now for psychiatry disease, but there is not a biobank uh, specialized uh, focus on a genetic type of epilepsy, which is also a topic of our uh, focus of our research. I have to say, just get this in quickly, for, for those who, who aren't um, actually seeing the video, there is this rather large dar rather expensive looking microscope behind you right now, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> Do you actually use that one or...? or? I, I use uh, still the microscope, but uh, uh, we are going to digital pathology. So, uh, so we have a little bit of delay in our department because of the fusion of the two hospitals. But uh, uh, in other departments, uh, they use uh, only the computer. So you get in the place of microscope. I don't think that I will. Uh, I will have my microscope in the next ten years. But the next generation of uh, neuropathology probably they will work with a big screen. So you have three screen. Uh, together and then uh, you can also do the uh, diagnosis on uh, with uh, digital imaging which offer a possibility also um, to analyze the imaging so to uh, recognize patterns of disease of a pathology oh my goodness you're putting like these the images future. into my head like of nasa or something where you've got like these big screens and you can see all these details in front of you you know so, yeah actually we'll be as the uh, neuroradiologist uh, the, for uh, for the future we already use the digital pathology we are um, now the, for the organization we are a little bit delayed but they are as i mentioned other hospital where they only work with digital pathology so cool and so could you tell everybody please what led you to the epilepsies because there's so like an indefinite number of um sort of projects you could or topics you could go into why epilepsy yeah as i mentioned uh, uh, i went to epilepsy because uh, uh, i meet some key person that inspired me to work on epilepsy and one was when uh, just i was a phd student here at the university of amsterdam professor lopez da silva really a, a great and known person in the field of uh, epilepsy and the uh, uh, physiology of uh, epilepsy. Uh, he also had a, a clinical, uh, uh, he was a psychiatry for origin, but he did basic research at the University of Amsterdam and uh, working and developing uh, animal model of epilepsy. Uh, so he was really a great person uh, and uh, he was also the mentor of my husband which was working on epilepsy so <laughs> that was uh, the other important person in my life <laughs> so I met as PhD student and we start to work together so we start to discuss about uh, the mechanism of epilepsy the model when we moved to United States we continue to work together and I had also a project at Albert Einstein College on uh, kinate model of epilepsy and mechanism of epilepsy and uh, glutamate receptor that was my topic uh, since uh, uh, I start to do research and when we came back uh, I had to start from zero because I was following my husband back with a child so must be love <laughs> uh, so then I decided okay uh, I really I want to work on epilepsy and professor Lobo da Silva stimulate me to to write a project and uh, that I did, I follow <laughs> his suggestion. There was a fellowship and I wrote my own project on uh, tumors and epilepsy. And But these are special tumors, they are uh, developmental tumors. 
tumor which are highly epileptogenic, uh, which are operate in the context of uh, epilepsy surgery. So my first, uh, uh, my own project, uh, when I really start my small team with one technician, uh, was on this uh, tumor. I'm still working on this tumor, so understanding why these tumors are so epileptogenic, why they are uh, associated uh, with uh, seizure development uh, progression and this uh, in young patients, so it can be children, young adults, and, uh, and then uh, I start to work and look at the molecular characteristics of this tumor. Uh, 30 years, more than 20 years later, we know more ab about these tumors and uh, we know that they are developmental tumors. And uh, so we can uh, uh, include this tumor in the large spectrum of, uh, we can say, developmental disorder, uh, which include also the malformation of cortical development, which is now another topic of my research. So what have you found out over these past sort of 20 odd years that has sort of what informational facts have you gathered that has been of use to people affected by the epilepsies? Yeah, uh, for, for our research uh, studying uh, uh, and using the human tissue with different techniques, uh, which include also transcriptomics, so on uh, the gene expression, uh, we, and in combining also with experimental model, uh, we, for example, uh, identify uh, inflammation, neuroinflammation of one of the mechanisms which play an important role in seizure development uh, progression and which represent a commonality throughout a different type of epilepsy. Also there, you don't do the work together, you team together with other colleagues and uh, a great collaborators, uh, particularly in the field of neuroinflammation is Anna Maria Vezzani. So I think I met her when I still, uh, uh, I was uh, at not a position that was in 97 at a meeting and I was also inspired by her uh, uh, presentation and uh, research and then I think since uh, I met in 97 and uh, since 98 I think we collaborate with her, still we <laughs> write paper together, we brainstorm together and uh, so neuroinflammation uh, was indeed one of the um, the finding uh, uh, which uh, um, at the starting from 2000 uh, uh, um, highlighted this commonality and potential target of therapy. And then uh, also uh, there I met another person at another meeting, uh, Peter Crino, which was working on developmental disorder and, and mTOR. And this inspired also me, oh, uh, there is some link between this pathology and this developmental tumor, so I start to work uh, uh, on tuberous sclerosis complex. And this is uh, really uh, one disease uh, that uh, uh, where we work more than 10 years, maybe 15 years within uh, our team. Uh, that was uh, uh, thanks to the inspiration <laughs> that uh, going to the meeting, I said, like, oh yeah, that is really an interesting disease to understand uh, the epileptogenesis, the early epileptogenesis, so in, uh, in children. And, uh, and then we start to work on the mTOR, this, uh, uh, this uh, um, pathway uh, which is uh, associated, uh, which is deregulated in tuberous sclerosis complex, uh, but is involved also in other focal malformation. And in the last uh, 10 years, we learned a lot about the genetic of this malformation of cortical development. And this is indeed is the one topic of the uh, presentation at the meeting in Denmark. Uh, so uh, really, uh, 
the big uh, uh, changes in the understanding the pathogenesis of this developmental disorder is represented by the detection of mutation. Uh, mutation in specific genes uh, uh, which uh, uh, are uh, linked to the mTOR. So there are different genes which regulate with this uh, pathway which is important for brain development of function. So it's essential to have a normal brain uh, with a normal structure and normal function. Uh, and indeed already before they discovered these genes we saw that there were some formational corti cortical development which were similar under the microscope. So under the microscope you could see the same type of alteration and these are represented by large cells, abnormal cells, there is also inflammation, but uh, particularly what these features is uh, abnormal cells and the disorganization of the structure. So uh, before the genetics, uh, uh, we thought, oh, there has to be a commonality, has to be the same mechanism, and indeed genes related to the same pathways are involved. And uh, now, as I will uh, discuss also, in, uh, uh, in Denmark at the meeting uh, is uh, we have the possibility to detect uh, this mutation in the tissue. And the challenge is that uh, uh, you cannot detect uh, in uh, biofluid, but uh, these mutations are only present in the tissue, are only present in a small population of cells. So you need really to have tissue, uh, which is uh, uh, good quality tissue. So you can identify it only in the actual tissue, is that correct? You can find cells which contain the mutation, okay. and these are uh, uh, structural alterations, so they are malformation of the cortical development, non-neoplastic, uh, but they have a mutation in, uh, in the pathological cells. And uh, so now uh, we have the tools uh, to detect because you have to do really deep sequencing to detect this mutation, and 10 years ago we had not the tools to do this. And the idea is now to implement, actually we can implement in the diagnostic workflow so we can learn, really uh, show that uh, there is a specific mutation, a specific mutation in the mTOR pathway or specific mutation in other pathway. Also other genes re not related to mTOR have been identified. Uh, and indeed in the uh, update classification of uh, focal cortical dysplasia um, this, uh, the genetics has to be integrated so the suggestion is really to combine not only to look at the tissue under the microscope uh, as a classical neuropathology but to combine this information with the clinical information also the radiology and the genetics. And the genetics is really important to have a, a final diagnosis. So the patients will get a diagnosis, uh, at, at least we try to reach a final diagnosis where you say, okay, which type of malformation you have, and if you eventually you look at the, um, for, uh, perform the mutation analysis, which type of mutation. And this is important, uh, so we hope that will be important uh, to stratify patients, to understand uh, which patient may profit or not from surgical resection, and um, in the future also which patients may be candidate for a, a more target therapy. Because if you have a gene, you have a pathway, so you can stratify for a biological category. And uh, just uh, uh, to say that uh, we have uh, inhibitor, for example, by mTOR, which are used in uh, tuberous sclerosis, so that is an example, but there are uh, other possibility if you identify the gene or the pathway to have a more uh, uh, targeted therapy. 
So that is the reason why it's important to have all this information together and to perform a more integrated diagnosis. And all of this research, especially that which you're just speaking about, uh, tuberous sclerosis, is the information you gather likely to positively impact the care and treatment of people solely with the diagnosis? Or do you think it could actually positively impact people with other types of epilepsies as well? I think the knowledge about the role of uh, mTOR in epileptogenesis uh, uh, is important not only for genetic type of epilepsy uh, as a tuberous sclerosis or focal cortical dysplasia, but for other type of epilepsy. So we know that, for example, activation of uh, mTOR uh, takes place also in a quiet type of epilepsy. So uh, in temporal lobe epilepsy, and in, as has been shown in models of temporal lobe epilepsy, there is also an activation of, of uh, mTOR. So this pathway, which is really complex, uh, is uh, particularly interesting uh, to understand uh, the uh, commonality in epileptogenesis throughout the different type of epilepsy. That's a really great look at point. The downstream targets. So, yes, so we learn, I think, tuberosclosis was really, and is still really, this great disease model to understand epileptogenesis and then to translate uh, a part of this information to other type of epilepsy is also possible. The advantage of TSC is that uh, you know that the children, they will, uh, 80% of the children, they will develop uh, seizures. And uh, the children, they have already a network which is uh, pro-epileptogenic before birth. So that is the reason why. So you can follow in the first year of life. Uh, so it is really, we can say, a model for epileptogenesis and to eventually modulate epileptogenesis to modify the severity of disease because uh, uh, you can follow from the genetic diagnosis at birth uh, and, and then you try with uh, uh, treatment, an early treatment to modify the severity of disease. Do people with, um, just making me th- think of um, a friend of mine who's mentioned um, babies or fetuses having seizures, does that ever happen with tuberous sclerosis? There are a few papers which uh, uh, support upon this. What I can say that uh, there is a an, an structural alteration and the functional alteration are already present before birth. So majority of these children develop uh, seizures really in the first months of life. Mm. We did, uh, uh, and within the consortium Epistop, uh, uh, 94 children with uh, diagnosis of tuberous sclerosis at birth have been uh, studied, rich, uh, really with everything, with all the tools that we had in the first two years of life. So, uh, for example, doing EG, the first EG after the diagnosis, already showing these children alteration of the patterns, of the EG patterns, uh, and this alteration can be used as a biomarker to predict which children they will have uh, more uh, problem in also in development. So you can use, uh, and this alteration already present in the first months of life. So that say that uh, we have to start if we want to modify the severity of disease uh, as soon as possible with treatment. And in this consortium uh, was uh, done a uh, preventive treatment with Vigabatrin, which is uh, one of the anti-seizure medications that you use in these patients. But there are also trials which are going on with, uh, uh, for prevention, because that is the idea in this genetic epilepsy, uh, with mTOR inhibitors. So we will hear in the next years more about uh, the results of uh, 
early treatment prevention. Ah, that's what I was going to ask you, actually. What do the next few years hold? So that's what's exciting, I think, is that you carry on with your research and fingers crossed, hopefully, or two fingers crossed, that, you know, you will be able to help prevent these seizures and prevent, well, the brain mucking itself up, I guess. That's not a very professional way to say it, but, yeah. Yeah, I think the idea is, and for myself, but for the clinical colleagues which are involved in clinical trial, uh, is maybe we cannot prevent, but we can modify. Okay. And uh, for sure, uh, to modify a process, because uh, uh, the damage, the alteration is, you have to think as epilepsy as a dynamic, and is a network disease, and this network is dynamic. So if you start early with treatment or target treatment, you can uh, control the network. Maybe you cannot prevent seizure, but you can reduce the severity. And what is important is still, we could not uh, uh, find in the trial with Vigabatrin, is uh, eventually to look whether early treatment or target treatment has an impact on the comorbidity. For example, which affect the quality of life of patients, a caregiver. You can control seizure, but if the child still has a cognitive problem, neuropsychiatric disorder, behavioral disorder, that is still remain a big problem for the patients, for the child, and for the family. I'm so happy that you actually mentioned that bit. Um, I actually did a post um, on social media this morning. No, you don't like social media, but um, and it's about a just. If anybody's interested, it's a global um, survey called Epilepsy Surgery: A Patient and Carer Perspective, and I did the. Uh, the uh, questionnaire myself this morning and what was a really I think valuable opportunity um, and hopefully will be uh, valuable uh, information for the researchers is that there was a, a question about okay what is your priority when it comes to epilepsy surgery and because p- people I think generally often think oh it's about reducing or getting rid of those seizures and my input was like actually that wasn't my um, my number one uh that wasn't my priority. It was about things like mental health, psychiatry. It was about cognitive function, um, all sorts of things. Like it was about not being so tired all the time. And so I really appreciate what you're just saying that it's not about the seizures alone. No, it is an, uh, a complex disease with different component. And in genetic epilepsy, for sure, you have two component: epilepsy and development. Is a di- di- uh, they are intersecting with each other. Yeah. So uh, you can imagine that uh, if you have a genetic epilepsy, you are dealing with a mutation of a gene, which is important for normal development. So that itself may affect the development. On the top, you have also epilepsy through the same gene and the mechanism. And if you cannot control seizure activity, then for sure, severe seizure activity has also an impact on development. So they are sometimes independent mechanisms through related to the genes, but these two different mechanisms, they intersect, they influence each other. And I, I think that this is, uh, uh, we uh, don't have only to look at control of seizure, but we have to consider in total the, the problem of the patients. and. Um, as mother of a child with intellectual disability, how this might understand how these aspects are really important and uh, affect the quality uh, of life of the patients, more sometimes of the epilepsy itself. 
Thank you, exactly. And thank you for your openness there. I, I've i met many people, I think I've mentioned this in, in other podcasts, but just, you know, so many people would rather have an extra seizure if it meant that they would be happier, you know, or more content, or because it's not necessary, the pr- priority is not necessarily the controlling or halting of the seizures. And then you have to take into consideration the impacts of potential anti-seizure medications, you know. Um, an interesting one, uh, interesting one it's something I came up with today was that so we know that uh, say if we're talking about temporal lobe epilepsy commonly the impact of both the epilepsy or, or the sclerosis and the drugs can be reduced cognitive function and then okay so you hope if you have surgery if you're suitable for surgery and it reduces your um, number of or severity of seizures that's great but you're missing brain tissue and that can severely impact of course your cognitive function so it's kind of weighing things up isn't it what is going to be the impact of certain treatments, whether that be surgery, drugs, etc., etc.? That is the reason why uh, the focus of the research and the treatment, the care for patients with epilepsy, but all the neurological disorder, is to go for a personalized therapy. Mm-hmm. What is good for one patient is not good for the other, and you have to look at the situation per patient, uh, which is more complicated. So not only seizures, but all the problem which come with seizures uh, um, and uh, all, all the uh, side effects of antiepileptic drugs. And sometimes you do not realize as a, a neurologist when you give an antiepileptic drugs how the side effect can be worse. And, uh, uh, and I, I have my own experience with my best friends that had a uh, metastasis of a brain tumor, uh, a metastasis of a lung tumor in the brain and where uh, she had some seizure, but at the end she accepted to have seizures in the place to have anti-seizure medication because the effect of anti-seizure medication for her were worse than the few seizures that she got per month. Often it can depend upon a person, for instance, their uh, profession. I, you know, I know somebody who has um, or who has epilepsy but chose to not have a certain type of surgery because she said, I won't be able to paint anymore. If that happens, although all might be, you know, my uh, level of creativity is likely to be affected, should I say. Um, so, no, I won't go for that. And so, yeah, it's different priorities in life, isn't it? I suppose a lucky thing, maybe lucky is not the right word, but if you, if you have this choice when you are older um, and you have the intellectual capacity to make that choice, that's really cool, whereas lots of people don't have yeah. that. Yeah, so the parents uh, yeah. have to take this decision. It's, I think, really difficult uh, to decide, and uh, but I think uh, with uh, uh, teams uh, uh, and a network of colleagues yeah. with different expertise, so I think it's important uh, to go for a personalized therapy and to look uh, uh, the whole problem of the patients uh, uh, and uh, what is the best for these specific patients, and that is and communicate with patients and that, uh, yes, <laughs> knowing how to do so. Gosh, you are in a remarkably unique well, kind of on paper, sometimes positive, you know, position that you um, empathize with what some parents can be going through, the patients can be going through, you've been a neurologist, now you're a neuropathologist, it's seeing all these different aspects is really rare. Um, But hearing from you as well, is making me get even more excited about our conference in Denmark, because I know some of the people, other people there, and I won't mention them, because they'll get 
embarrassed but just like other you know geneticists and stuff they're really seeing things from the perspective of precision therapy which is wonderful you know rather than just throwing the same anti-seizure med- medications at everybody and hoping that that will be okay and it's all just about the seizures instead it's about evaluating the lives of each individual with their input um, rather than just making the decision as a clinician you know that, as we discussed before we started the interview, is really important uh, to uh, talk with patients, to understand uh, what is important for them and bring this uh, in our research. And, uh, and that is uh, maybe more straightforward for clinical research, uh, but uh, more difficult uh, if you go to basic research. Uh, that is the reason why I try to stimulate uh, uh, younger scientists, uh, which are coming from the field of neurobiology, so not, not medical doctor, also to understand how important it is uh, uh, to be confronted with the disease, to understand what they are studying, because they never saw a patient with epilepsy, never never talk a patient with epilepsy, but they, they need to do. They need uh, to do to, to get inspiration, uh, to understand that they do something which is meaningful, not only looking at cells and doing experiments yeah. for their publication. Uh, it's not a high-impact publication which is important, uh, but it's important uh, uh, if you do things with patients which have a name, which is to treat the disease, maybe not immediately, but you, you, give a, you provide a small uh, information, a small piece of this uh, big uh, puzzle, uh, and then uh, that is one aspect for them to understand the disease and they do something which is uh, important in a way, uh, but also try to communicate their uh, difficult, uh, complex uh, uh, experimental results uh, to patients or maybe help the patients uh, uh, to uh, explain, uh, to discuss a scientific paper of other teams, uh, which could be of interest also. Yeah. And. Uh, and, and, and actually, that makes me think of what you just mentioned earlier as well, how you may be sp- rather specifically studying or one, one of your areas is t- uh, tuberous sclerosis, but you also recognize the benefits actually of the data collected um, for people who aren't affected by tuberous sclerosis, but instead, say, temporal lobe epilepsy. There's a lot of overlap, isn't there? Yes, we work also in temporal lobe epilepsy. I oh about my God, okay. Because this is in my, in this my heart uh, recently. Well, that's but for another uh, episode, then we'll go into that one later. <laughs> no, actually I start to work and uh, we work still on temporal lobe epilepsy because all the models that we have uh, are model of temporal lobe epilepsy huh. or status epilepticus. So we have two lines of research within the team. Uh, one is indeed uh, the genetic epilepsy with focus on enteropathy, so tuberous sclerosis complex. And the other uh, is indeed uh, temporal lobe epilepsy, hippocampal sclerosis, with the model of hippocampal sclerosis and, uh, and also intractable status epilepticus, that is also another type of research. So what is a uh, commonality indeed, as I mentioned, is the inflammation, the inflammatory pathway that uh, we see in temporal lobe epilepsy, actually we uh, dis- discover, we identify using a model of temporal lobe epilepsy are also the regulating genetic type of epilepsy, at least in this enteropathy. So there are a lot of commonality. Uh, clearly there are also some different, but there are a lot of commonality. So we try to look at difference, but also commonality 
and then to address, uh, for example, the role of uh, mTOR also in temporal lobe epilepsy, the neuroinflammation also in temporal lobe epilepsy as we do in genetic epilepsy. Do you know what? I think that's a really good um, point to end this conversation on because you just made me think of how us as individuals in this world, or nearly 8 billion of us, we should be communicating with each other, identifying differences, yes, but also identifying similarities and sharing that information to benefit each party. Um, I think that's a, yeah, a really good point to finish on. Thank you so <laughs> much for your time, Eleonora. This is like so interesting and I will totally grab you again for, that sounds wrong, but I will totally, uh, if you are open to it, we will uh, de definitely be talking in another episode about your temporal lobe epilepsy research. It's very, very interesting. With pleasure. <laughs> if you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.